0: My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Mariners. Really good to be with you guys. Um, we are in the, the, well, I should say this too. Last week, um, I, I talked to him right before he's about to speak here. My, my youth pastor was speaking here, and, um, and then his youth pastor was speaking at our Sunday night community at, um, at Irvine in our chapel. And so um, it was just like, by the way, there are, there are people here who are walking down, at least on this side of the room, who are not security they just want to make sure if you want a Bible to like leaf through, you can pick one up. So Stage, raise your hand. They'll put one in your hand. But anyway, um, I I told someone last night. I said that my like the greatest compliment you can give to me ever is that when if everybody sometimes people say this to me, not knowing that I have a relationship with Doug who was speaking here last week. But they'll, they'll say, do you know a guy named Doug Fields? Because you, like, remind me of him. And that person is instantly, like, my favorite person in the whole world. Like, oh, my gosh, this is great. So, I, I mean, I could not say enough great things about him. He, I know that he told me, he's like, hey, I threatened to, like, make fun of you when I come back and speak in a couple weeks. And I said, whatever you do, I'm sure it'll be great. You know, I just, so, anyway, very good to be here. Um, be back with you guys. And we're in a series called Dear God. And it's a series based on the idea that, you know, all of us at least have some, whether, we're, whether it's our first time ever in a church, or it's the first time in a long time, or we've been here, we all have probably some idea that praying has something to do with the activity of people who belong to Jesus. Whether or not we agree with it, we at least know that prayer is something in there. And so we're just looking at the way Jesus instructs people to pray. And he's, he has a couple famous sort of prayers, but we're looking at sort of this prayer that's kind of known as as sort of the sort of marker. In fact, he says, here's a couple of ways you don't want to pray when he's talking about it. He says, don't pray like the, the hypocrites who want to stand on the corner and be recognized for their awesome religious righteousness. He says, don't pray like those people. And then he says, don't pray like the pagans who pray on and on and on, naming all of their gods and babbling and babbling and babbling. Exactly, none of that babbling like you hear over there. None of that stuff. Instead, what you want to do is you want to address God not as someone who would... <laughs> exactly not as God as someone who would be afraid to talk to you or would have to be manipulated or coerced. Instead, he says, and some of you may know this as you grew up in a different tradition, perhaps. He says, pray like this, our father. In other words, there's a a level of inclusion which Jesus begins to start talking about prayer, which is different than in other sort of past sort of experiences. Because he doesn't say pray to my father or pray to Jesus' dad. He says, pray to our father. And somehow we're included in this relationship of intimacy with God. And we talked over the past couple of weeks about what that might look like. We talked about the notion of God dwelling in heaven. That means that heaven is far closer than we might have realized. That heaven is not a distant galaxy. That heaven is this air all around us and among us that God is far closer than we might recognize. We talked about what it means to be a name bearer of God. In our own lives and into the world. We talked about participating in God's kingdom project, which is unfolding in the world. And it's the one that's pointed to in this prayer. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then we talked a little bit about the idea that this God, our Father, would give to us every day our daily needs. And so it's this prayer that we pray, that Jesus instructs his disciples, as sort of scaffolding on how prayer ought to take place. He says, this is a prayer not for people who are used to just reciting prayers. It's a prayer, a model for how to pray a desperate prayer that the world would be made different. In other words, it isn't a prayer that we just say, God, please protect everything in my life. In other words, it's a prayer that says, God, I desperately need you to intervene powerfully in this world, in my life now. And this is where that prayer looks like. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you the prayer. Some of you have seen it before. Maybe you grew up with it. Maybe you haven't memorized in a slightly different translation. Then we'll pray it at the end of the service. But right now, I just want to show you what that prayer looks like. It's in Matthew chapter 6. Here it is. This then is how you should pray. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the prayer. And what we're going to do is, if you've been with us, you've known that we've been walking through this kind of phrase by phrase over the past couple of weeks, and we're going to unpack another little section of this today. Before we do that, though, would you join me in praying? And we might be prepared. We might silence ourselves and still ourselves that God might work in and through us today. So we pause for just a moment. Lord, we affirm the reality that whatever it is that we had planned to do in this time of being together, a church cannot be done now that we're sitting here. We acknowledge that this time is solely dedicated to you and what you might do in and through us in here. Lord, for those of us who um, are in this space today, who are in need of a challenge or a prodding or a provoking, would you do so in such a way that only you can? Some of us, God, in here are so unaware of the fact that we're so deeply loved by you and forgiven by you. God, would there be a very clear experience of the reality of your forgiveness today in this place as well? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you're here and that you're at work. May you be, be made known to us in powerful and real ways as we look at your word together. In your name, Jesus, amen. So a couple weeks ago, or a couple days ago, actually, my I'm in the garage with my oldest son who's who's uh, he's eight, and then my, my wife Amanda, and we're we're in the garage and we're doing something. And I can't remember what we were doing, and we start hearing a very incredibly suspicious sound coming from inside the house. It is screaming and giggling and laughing. And my two youngest kids are in the house, you know, by themselves, and we're in the garage. And I look at Amanda and I go, Something, something's going on in there. She goes, I know, you better look in there. I'm like, you should look in there. So I open the, I open the garage door, back into our house, and there is my daughter standing there covered in water. She's screaming and laughing, and, her, and I see my three-year-old kind of Scotty run into this, like, out of my periphery, he comes in to kind of, and she just throws water on him, I'm looking, at the dog is covered in water, there's water everywhere in our house, it is like, oh my gosh, what just happened, what kind of leak just happened in our house, what's going on, well, it's the world's biggest water fight, so I do what any good dad would do, Amanda, you should go in there, you should probably see what's going on, because I don't, I don't really know, there's something, it's like, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't see anything, but maybe you could find something, so, so she walks in there, and it's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a full-blown water fight between a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and my three-year-old doesn't yet know what it means to, like, be busted. So my daughter's very aware of this. So she's standing there with—immediately, she's standing there with a cup of water in her hands, and she starts going—my my wife, Amanda, goes, Molly, what are you doing? She goes, well, Scotty was like—there's like, water— and he was, like, throwing it, and I, w- I wasn't even. And she's like, wait a second. And he just sees my son, like, sliding into the scene. <laughs> covered in water. <laughs> it's all like, and he's kind of like, hey, mom, and doesn't really get it. Scotty, Molly, and so just here, there's this discipline action now taking place. You know, you guys have to clean this. All this kind of stuff goes on. Now, put yourself in a situation, these little kids. When there is a water fight that begins, when you're standing there and you get hit in the face with a, like, sprinkle of water... You're faced with a decision, which is, what do I do after I have been just water thrown on me? And the only appropriate answer, if you're a little kid, and even now as a grown-up probably too, is the the ineffable law of all water fights, which is reciprocity. You get back at the person who got you. That's what you do. So if they, you know fling a little water on you with their hands, you get a cup. You get a cup, they get a bucket. They get the, you get the, the like spigot thing from the sink, and you spray them. They get the hose from outside, and pretty soon, it's just nothing but fire hoses and water and explosions of joy and screaming, and that's what you get. Now, there is, this is the prevailing ethic of the way in which sort of water, water fights work. I get you, you get me. And at some point, we have to ask the question, where does that sort of have a diminishing return? And usually, it's at the moment we get... Busted. Our world is not all that different. I mean, it's not water fights. It's not cups of water turning into buckets of water. But we live in a world full of grudges and neglect and abuse and wrongs and evils and attacks and pain that, act, that happen to us. And we're faced with the decision of how are we supposed to respond to those kinds of things. We're asked a couple of questions of how do we get into this mess in the first place and how are we going to end it? some of us will look for revenge we don't have to be taught you can already tell from a three-year-old and a six-year-old standpoint we don't have to be taught at a very young age like here's what you do when someone gets you with a cup of water you then respond with a bigger couple there's no we don't have to have that lesson taught to our kids we all know it if we experience some kind of injustice it's our right to retrieve that injustice to re, to recount that injustice with swift with swift punishment back on the person who gave it to us i mean you see this even when kids are like on road trips like if in the backseat, maybe you have kids of your own, maybe you've been on a road trip with a, a sibling, and there's, there's this line that every kid invents about their personal right to their space in the back of a minivan. You already know what I'm going to say. And that if ever that space is violated, you will get your hair pulled, you will get slapped, there will be some kind of screaming and yelling and tattling going on, and you, you can imagine then, it's like, don't touch me, and then inevitably, <laughs> I'm not touching you. Uh, I'm not touching it, and then, so because and because you've, you may, perhaps you aren't familiar with this, this the way this game works, inevitably you try to create a situation in which they do touch you. You know, oh, you touch me. <laughs> now it's all you know. That's all this kind of stuff. And there's this whole kind of no one had to tell them. You know, if they touch you, you should probably slap them. Like no one. There's no there's no there's no like conference in which people have to learn these things. You just know it. Only as we get older, there's a new ethic that sort of kind of prevails for us, for a lot of us. It's sort of two sides of the same coin. It's called tolerance, which is to say, whatever you did, didn't hurt and wasn't wrong. It wasn't that big of a deal, so I can just kind of deal with it and bury it. The other side of that coin is, is sort of the twin sister of denial, which is to say, it wasn't wrong at all. Not only was it not a big deal, it just wasn't wrong. It just didn't even happen. It was like it didn't even exist. And so our own wrongs, intolerance or denial, are sort of not really addressed. And the things that are done to us are buried underneath. We want neither one to count because we don't really know how to deal with it. And yet there's this situation in which there's a mess that we're somehow a part of and responsible for and in. In the first century, in the context of Jesus' prayer people are wondering how did we get into this mess that we're in now and what are we supposed to do with the evil that's around us because the situation they're in is one in which the Romans have conquered pretty much everywhere and they, over, they have overthrown the land where the Jews live and so while the Jews are in the land that's you know, promised to them, they have unwanted guests who live in their house who are not even guests who demand that they pay a 75% tax to Caesar. And so what they call it is exile. This is the mess that we're in. And invariably, when they start looking at the mess that they're in, the this, this sort of evil situation that they're in, invariably what they try to do is figure out, who caused this? Why is this happening to us? I mean, how do we wind up in a situation where this evil Caesar is over us, the guy who calls himself Lord and Savior, Caesar, Caesar how come he's here? And there's all kinds of sort of beliefs and thoughts about why this has happened, But one that starts to emerge and gain ground in the first century, particularly among a certain group of people, is this idea that the reason why Caesar is here is because we've been so sinful, and that if sin was done away with, then there would be no longer any Caesar, there'd be no longer any captivity. And the sort of necessary outcropping of this kind of thinking is to blame the most notorious sinners. If we could find the most notorious sinners and exile them, then our own exile would end. In other words, there are people who are causing the evil and the mess in this world. And some would say, you know, the way we deal with Caesar and his army is to just, you know, have a revolution, fight. But one that sort of Jesus kind of confronts a lot is this idea of people who say the, what we should do with those who have brought about evil and so also brought about our own captivity, our own exile, we should probably deal with them and exile them. And Jesus begins to sort of have this conversation, and it's pretty heated, in which he says, there's a way we're going to be dealing with exile, a way that we're going to be dealing with the mess of this world, because we know that the way in which exile will have to end, everybody tends to agree, is that God will have to do something with sin. And Jesus has his own answer for this, which is neither tolerance nor revenge. And it's in this prayer that we're invited to join him in it. It's Matthew 6, verse 12, which says, this and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors now remember this is Jesus telling his disciples how they should pray he doesn't say some of you are going to need to pray Forgive us for some serious stuff we've done or you know I know not all of us are going to need to be able to be praying forgive us but forgive some of us for some of the things we've done. The invitation in this prayer is that every single person is in need of forgiveness. And we also are ones who ought to be forgivers. That means there's a reception, a receiving of this kind of uh, of this kind of forgiveness, but also a participation In forgiving other people. In other words, that we, our own exile of unforgiveness, our own exile of being people who make mistakes, who wound others, who do things we regret, is ended. And so we participate in ending the exile of other people who have wounded us. In fact, this point is so incredibly clear, or so incredibly critical, that Jesus has to go a little further. At the end of the prayer... The prayer ends in verse 13, but he goes a little further in verse 14 and 15, just to clarify, because he wants to make sure everybody gets this, because this is the central message of ending exile for people. Verses 14 and 15 says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So far, everybody probably agrees. We're all in all okay with that affirmative statement, but verse 15 is a little bit more troubling, and I wish it wasn't there. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, we all sort of probably pause a little bit, like, wait a second. Could we have just stuck with the Lord's Prayer and just not had the extra explanation there, Jesus? Because this is a little bit more complicated. Because now the implications for forgiveness are pretty serious. We've been forgiven, so we should forgive other people. That's great. And what he says here then, this sort of additional commentary about his own prayer, is he says, you don't even understand forgiveness until you can forgive other people. It's clear that you don't get it until you're a forgiver of other people. In other words, you can say, dear Lord, thank you for forgiving me of all the things that I have done against other people and against you but I hate that guy and I'm going to make sure I get that person back and I'm due from that person and I'm going to score keep with that person for as long as I live. He'd say, no, 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 (laughs) you don't get it then. If you are a forgiven person, then you are a forgiving person. And all of us in the prayer are asking and seeking, forgive us because all of us are in need of forgiveness and all of us are in need of forgiving other people. To fully understand forgiveness means becoming and being a forgiver. If you will, you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 7 if you brought one. So Jesus says in his prayer, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, we are already people who have wounded and are wounding other people and have been wounded by other people. And so Jesus, who speaks a lot on forgiveness, gives us a story, an incident in his own sort of... It's a, it's a moment that actually happens and then a story that's kind of wrapped around this moment. And here's what he says in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. It says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him... Uh, she stood behind him his, sorry. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Let me tell you what's happening here. Jesus is invited to go to the house of a Pharisee. The Pharisee, Pharisee just means simply separate. These are people who believe that their role is to sort of separate themselves out from the rest of, the, the rest of Jewish society. And they would invite other people to join them too with incredibly strict laws on righteousness. And these are people who had constantly these confrontations with Jesus because they believed if they could, they could end the exile of their own people simply by ending sin, by elevating the call to righteousness. And they're constantly looking at Jesus, trying to go, Are you the one, everyone, you keep talking and acting like this person called the Messiah, God's sort of chosen person who's supposed to come here and redeem Israel, isn't that like set us free? Is that you? Only they tend to, at least the way the Bible paints the ones that Jesus has confrontation with it tends to paint them in a light that's a little bit like, we know you're not, and so we're just looking for a reason to prove that you're not. And now Jesus is having, he's invited to have dinner at this Pharisee's house. And it says that he's reclining at the table. Now, you have to understand that it's not like, you know, like at your table at your house, where, you know, you sit up at a chair, and, you know, there's like a placemat, and then there's like, two forks over here, the smaller one for the salad, and there's two spoons over here. I'm not sure which one's for which. And then there's a couple knives, and there's like, you know, not that you all sit like that, but you know what I'm talking about. It's not a formal dining room. Instead, there's a low table with no chairs, and maybe there's a pillow, but basically you sort of, you recline on one arm and kind of lay down at the table. And here's what's happening then. There, there's a woman who hears about this. She learned that Jesus was eating at a Pharisee's house, which then there's a, there's a necessary connection There's So... She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, an incredibly expensive container of perfume. And the only way to open an alabaster jar is, of course, to break it. And so Jesus is laying down, reclining at the table, and the woman stands at his feet. And she's crying. And the tears are covering his feet. And she's washing his feet, wiping his feet. She's kissing his feet and she's scandalizing them. She's scandalizing the entire party with her hair down over his feet. And she's kissing him, and the perfume is now in the air. This is a woman with a reputation who, when she shows up, is immediately crying, and we do not know why. She's an uninvited dinner guest at this party. And if there was ever a a greater contrast between a Pharisee who held themselves and held everybody else to incredibly high moral standards, the the opposite of that person would be this woman. A, because she's a woman in this time, and B, because she's a notorious sinner. She has a reputation, and now she's scandalizing Jesus and the whole dinner party. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Now, among all the expectations about the person who God is supposed to send to rescue all of Israel, to redeem the whole world, etc., at least one of the things that sort of would be about him would be that he would be a prophet, that he would have this sort of prophetic air about him. And he says to himself, if this guy was a prophet, if you were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. If you have your own Bible, underline the word touching him. The word touching here, isn't just merely like brushing up against. It has all kinds of other implications that are laced with other innuendo. In other words, there's a there's a very clear sense that what the, the man is, this Pharisee is thinking is that there's some kind of the, the Bible describes in this the word here is something like adherence, a permanent bonding together of people in that kind of union. And he says, if you knew who was touching him. Bonding with him, adhering to him. And what kind of woman? The word kind of, or kind of woman. That word actually means like tribe or nation or people group. In other words, she's that kind of person who's not one of us. She's the person who belongs to another kind of group that's not us. Have you ever noticed, maybe it's within you, or maybe you've seen other people do this. That sometimes we have a tendency to group people on an individual experience of them, in so doing, we make them a little bit less human because they belong to a block of people instead of a single person. You know, those people, those people who live in Lidera. I mean, I'm just making up, but you know what I'm saying. <clears throat> but the word he uses is if to say that this is a woman who, who belongs to another group, and that group is not our group. And if Jesus was aware of what group she belonged to, he wouldn't let her do this. He would stop her and shame her and send her out. He would further exile her because she's sinful because that's what the Messiah, this one who would come, would do. He would exile the people who are not righteous. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something. to. Now remember, I should go back to this. Simon the Pharisee says to himself, if a man with this man were a prophet, he would know touching him. What kind of woman she is, she's a sinner. So he just kind of mutters this under his breath. He thinks, "Whoever happens. And then Jesus addresses that muttering. Yeah, if he really knew. And then Simon answered him. Jesus answered, Jesus answered Simon. Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, okay. I, was, I didn't say anything. I was just sitting here. I was just, we're hanging out. Then I was, what, what? Tell me, teacher, he said. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. He owed him, one owed him 500 denarii. denarii. A denarius is a single day's wage. So this is like, you know, about a year and three quarters worth of, of pay. And the other 50 denarii. Uh, neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Stop right there. The question Jesus asks isn't, which of them will be more grateful for the debt that's been forgiven? Which of them will think, wow, That guy's really more gracious than I ever would. Which guy's going to have that understanding? Instead, what he says is, which of them will love him more? In other words, there's some kind of correlation between being forgiven and the capacity to love. The greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. Because he doesn't say... Who just feels a little bit better about that debt being canceled? Who's a little bit more grateful? He says, who will love him more? Verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus says. And now you get this picture here. Remember that Jesus is being accused of allowing someone to adhere, to touch him. In a way that's incredibly scandalous. And now there's a picture that's emerging that Jesus is talking about love. If there was ever anything that had any adhering properties, love would be among the most adhering of those things. Keep on reading. Verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and, sa- and said to Simon, Now, let me tell you this real quickly. Stop right here. Jesus is, ta- who is he talking to? Simon. But he's turning to face the woman. In other words, so he's laying down, reclining, and who knows if he's changed positions at this point, but he's laying down, the woman crying, the tears on the feet, the perfume at his feet, the the hair scandalizing, the whole thing. And there he then turns to the woman, but is addressing Simon. In other words, at this point, the woman who is there is not just an object lesson. Hey, you know that woman we're talking about over here? He's facing her, but he's talking to Simon. As if to model, you have neglected the humanity of this person in your own house. So here's what he says as he's facing the woman, but talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Which clearly he didn't. I came into your house and you did not give me any water from my feet, but she wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Customary would be that you would walk in and there would, someone would give you a basin to wash your feet off because it's a dusty place. And there is this woman here who has been wetting my own feet with her own tears and wiping them with her hair. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Customary as well, when someone would walk in your house, we would shake hands or hug in this particular time and place, in which is still you know, present to this day. The way that you would greet someone is you would kiss them on the cheek. Jesus says, you didn't kiss me. There's no water for my feet. And this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. And then, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Listen to the connection. As her great love has shown, the indication of her great forgiveness for the sins that she has committed, that you had hoped, Simon, to keep on the outside to exile, her forgiveness has been made evident in her great love. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, here's what's happening. Let me just give you a sense. Let me try to recap a little bit. There is a wide strata of society that are being represented here on all kinds of spectrums. You have the Pharisee who is very aware of his own righteousness and very aware of the unrighteousness of this woman who comes in, who is the most scandalizing figure you could possibly imagine. Her hair is down, the tears, the perfume, the reputation that she has brought into the house. She has actually profaned the house of a righteous person by being in there. She's ruined the whole dinner in so many ways. And then there's Jesus, who starts talking in these very strange ways. He starts saying things about her. Remember, he's talking to Simon still at this point. Her sins, which are many. He acknowledges that there, has been, there, there, has, there are sins, and there have been some of them but they have been forgiven. In other words, what he's saying here, her exile is over. It was your intent, Simon, to keep her on the farthest reaches of society, as far out as she could get, so she couldn't pollute your life. And now, her exile has come to an end because we know that the connection between exile and sin, there's going to have to be something dealing with sin there. And there is Jesus' solution. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And he gives the, the Pharisee an indictment. Because what he says here is, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The Pharisee is aware of his own righteousness to the degree that he is unable to love with very much. Because he doesn't even acknowledge his necessity for being forgiven. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So now he's no longer talking to Simon while speaking to the woman. He's speaking directly to her. And this is, the, this is the culmination of the end of that exile. Your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? This is only what God could do. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has rescued you from exile. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of you in the room are thinking, this is a message about forgiveness. But this woman didn't personally wound the Pharisee. I mean, there's no, there's no back story here. At least she didn't tell us. Like, that she didn't, you know she didn't sabotage his family or do something, there's no other thing that she's done that would have been sort of in need of forgiveness, right? Well, no. You see, because here's what happens. If, as a Pharisee, I believe that this person is responsible for my own captivity, they're responsible for the Romans being in my own hometown and taxing me heavily, heavily and dealing with me in swift and unjust ways, because of her unrighteousness is the reason why the Romans are here, then she's public enemy number one. And she's personally wounded me and my people. So I hold her responsible. I blame the most notorious sinners among us for us being held captive. Not only that, because of her reputation, because she entered into his own house, she brought with her that shame and that profanity into the house of the Pharisee who would then say, you've ruined everything. The assumption in this prayer, remember, is that every single one of us in this room is in need of forgiveness? That if I was to ask you, it would be unanimous, unless you were lying. That every one of you has wronged someone else, and probably not every one of you has lived a perfectly, by so doing, you know, in some ways, you you, you also have not lived a perfectly moral life in terms of adherence to all of God's sort of prescriptive way of living. All of us are in need of forgiveness. And all of us also have been wronged by other people. There's this sort of description of the idea of being wronged or offending or sinning against God, but also being sinned against by other people and sinning against other people. And the primary work of God in the Bible is to release captives and exiles to freedom. This is what he does. And, and it's so doing, when we talk about forgiveness, which we most of us will understand it, is that forgiveness is the way in which we release people who have wronged us from our own wrath and our own judgment and our own revenge-seeking and our own scorekeeping and our own bitterness, which is true. But there's this other thing that happens in forgiveness that's often neglected, which is that when we release people from our own scorekeeping, bitterness, wrath, anger, whatever, resentment we actually wind up releasing ourselves. In other words, we can create our own captivity and our own exile by our own unforgiveness. I want you to hear a story. We're we're, um, sitting around at a table this week, uh, a bunch of us who are teaching this message this weekend. And we start talking about sort of our own experiences of forgiveness and we're working through some stuff. And there's a guy at the table who's teaching, actually he's teaching this morning at the chapel at Irvine. And I say, gee, I go, Gerardo, you've got you got a story about forgiveness about your dad. He's like, What? I go, tell everybody your story. And so he begins to tell us a story of his own journey towards forgiveness. And I said, That story's so good, we gotta make sure that every one of our every one of our venues hears it. And so what I want you to do is I want you to, to hear his story in just a second. Gerardo's a guy who grew up in the projects. He's one of four four brothers, raised by a single mom, with no dad. And this is his story of forgiving his father. Check this out.
1: I was 10 years old when my dad um, left. Although my dad had left uh, many times before that, uh, for brief periods, I knew that this time was different. I knew that that fight that my mom and my dad had the night before was different. I knew there was something different about that morning. I remember sitting at, uh, on my couch with uh, eating breakfast with my older brother, and I remember looking over to him and uh, asking him the question, "He's not coming back, is he?" I remember my older brother looking back at me, saying, just shaking his head, saying, "No." And I knew that our life was going to be different. My younger brother was a teenager when he first um, when he got this desire to want to meet our dad. He was the only one who had never. Been face to face. He was a he was a baby when my dad left, so he started working with my uncles and, and did his own little investigation work what a teenager could do. But somehow, I believe through God's will, I was able to find out this little town that my dad was in. My father was a mechanic, and so we called this little auto shop in that city in the little town, and, uh, and sure enough, the, aunt, the, the the owner answered the phone, and he says, "Yes, your dad used to your dad worked here for some time, and he doesn't work here anymore. Uh, but if you call back tomorrow afternoon." Uh, I'll be sure that he's here so he can take your phone call. Uh, he calls the next afternoon, and he calls, and, and uh, to all of our surprise, uh, my dad answers the phone, and uh, they had this conversation. It was it was brief, uh, but um, but we heard the news that my dad had been sober for almost a year, and um, and my brother wanted to meet him, so he he said come up to to TJ because he couldn't cross the border legally, so he come come to TJ. And we'll go across and see you, and. Um, and he agreed so they set, they set up this date this whole thing and where for them to meet up and so we went down and we met him and it was such an interesting time we, 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 we picked him up um, at a bus station and, and ended up sitting down having dinner and it was a real surreal time and as he sat next to my mom we asked our dad so where have you been what's, what's the story what's going on and he he starts telling us about where he's been and, and what life has been like and, and uh, talking about how 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 dark uh, his days have been, uh, how how he's regretted every day of his life, um, the decisions that he's made, and he, and he understands the pain that he caused, and and that pain just drew him further further into his, his drug abuse and his alcohol abuse. Then to be able to speak the words to him that that hey here's where we've been, here's what we've lived through, um, here's what your just dis- your decision uh, did to us and to our family. Um, But in spite of all that, we love you, and we're so glad to be here with you. I thought that forgiveness was about just releasing somebody else, um, making it okay for them, for the pain that someone else caused you, saying that it's okay, you've been released from it. Um, And the biggest learning that I had, uh, the biggest thing that I learned was that, yes, it's true, my dad uh, appreciated the gift of being released from those things, from me saying, I forgive you. Uh, But the truth is, I'm the one who needed to be released. I needed to be released from uh, the anger, the sadness, the resentment that I held for a very long time, that inhibited the way that I lived, uh, that inhibited the way that I loved.
0: Well, you. You don't, you don't get in that story. This is what we talked about in this group of guys as we're sitting together and we're all kind of listening to the courage of Gerardo as he's talking about this journey to go find his dad. Is that his dad at the end of the conversation, having felt the release of forgiveness, says to his, his boys, I'm ready to come home and be your dad now, I'll, I'll whatever you want me to do. And they say, no, dad. That's not what this is about. And what they, what they model for him is that the, the very, very power model for us is the very powerful and significant difference between trust and forgiveness. Trust is something requiring a track record that's built over time, and forgiveness is something in which we release people from our own bitterness and resentment. But forgiveness and trust are not the same thing, and they say to their, to their dad... No, Dad, we just want to let you know that we no longer hold you in contempt. We release you. But we're not asking for everything to go back to better than it was. That's not what we're planning on. It's not what we're here about. But in this story, you get this incredible, courageous, even painful steps towards, I no longer want to be held captive by my own unforgiveness. And you heard him even say, I got got freed to live and freed to love. I don't know about you. But my own response when people wound me generally is one of toleration. And toleration is just a smokescreen for bitterness and resentment that builds up within us. Some of you, I'm sure, are more revenge people. I'm a tolerance person, which means you can wound me and I'll deny it and minimize it and stuff it in and get it deeper and deeper in my own soul and in my own heart and deeper within me, such that the people that are around me that I really care about, who have nothing to do with the initial incident or the initial wounding, always pay the highest price. Maybe you can relate. Some of you may be a revenge seeker, some of you may be just pure denial experts but you have been wronged in your life. And you have wronged other people. And we are a people who are in need of being forgiven and forgiving other people. Because forgiveness doesn't say, everything that happens to me isn't a big deal. It acknowledges the reality of very serious wounds that have happened to us and says, I'm not going to continue to keep score and pile stuff on but it doesn't minimize what actually happened. This is a room full of people who are offenders and offended. This is a room full of people who are the wounded and the wounders. And we're people who are offended or wronged on a daily basis. You don't have to drive two miles in your own car before someone does something to you that is offensive to you, to which you might have to say, wow, I could seek revenge or get in the business of releasing them to forgiveness. I I am found in my life that those daily things that have, that plague me on a regular basis about other people, all those other people out there, is that generally those things tend to point to something deeper within my own life that I have yet to release and yet to have resolved from my own past. Not always, but generally. I'll give you an example of what I mean. The other day we're supposed to meet Amanda and the kids that I were supposed to meet. Another family was supposed to come hang out with us. And it wasn't like we were going to a movie where there was like a time. If they didn't get there in time, you know, then the whole thing is ruined. But it was the, we're just going to hang out together. And I'd we get a text message saying, hey, we can't make it. There's just too much traffic. And I start going Crazy. I start like, this is, I start talking really, you know, angry and fast and loud to my wife. And she's like, why are you getting all so angry about this? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just so, this is so obnoxious. And I'm going on and on and on. This is so typical. I started making all this story about them. They always do this. They're never cool to us. Why are we friends with them? All this stuff. She's like, whoa. And I go, this isn't about them, is it? she goes, no, it's not. Because my own dad, I have heard the words before, let's, come, let's be together, and I can't make it because there's too much traffic. My dad is from San Diego, lives in San Diego, and I live in Irvine, and this is, you know, going back to my childhood. Oh, it's just too much traffic, I won't be able to make it. So all of a sudden, this daily little thing that's really kind of excusable, like I've never been late to something or not been able to make it somewhere before in my life. All of a sudden became this thing that was this, all of these old voices of bitterness and anger began to come back up in my own life. It's my experience that the daily things that bother us somehow are connected to deeper wounds in our lives. And I want to give you a very, very, very brief process. And this is not, this won't suffice for all the situations. But let me tell you, here's a way that when I'm even able to say, this isn't about this, is it? This is the the process I go through in my own head. Sometimes it needs to be written down. Here it is. First thing is this, to acknowledge the reality of the actual pain that's happened. Hey, this is wrong. They said they, were, they broke a promise they're supposed to do something they didn't do it. Let's acknowledge that it's actually real. Let's not minimize it. Let's not make it smaller. Let's acknowledge that it's real. Then identify a feeling that goes with it. Are you disappointed? Are you hurt? Are you sad? Are you angry? Are you humiliated? Are you lonely? Abandoned? Whatever it is. What is Rejected? What is it? Let's identify there's a real feeling that goes with it. And then thirdly... Uh, The question I'm learning to sort of ask sometimes is, if my response is disproportionately high, (laughs) like there's way too much emotion, then it probably points to something else in my life. What is it where I felt this, where this feeling feels a little bit familiar? And then the two last steps are a little bit more difficult, which is, where have I ever caused this feeling in someone else? Maybe not to the same degree, but where have I also caused this to someone else? And then lastly is to release them because they're no different than I am. Doesn't mean that what they did didn't hurt. It just means that I no longer have to pile on and score keep that I can release them because I want to end the exile for them and for myself in this journey of forgiveness. Now whenever Jesus mentions this idea of forgiveness, it's always about a debt that is an unpayable sum. It's always about an amount that people could never just pull out of their wallet and pay up. In Matthew 18, he talks about a debt of 60 million working days worth of money that someone owes. That no one could ever possibly repay by their own just sort of money. Instead, the king, the ruler, the one who's in charge of it all, will have to absorb it all unto himself. To put it another way, we believe in having our kids clean up the messes that they make. So we tell my three-year-old son and his six-year-old sister, you guys get towels and start cleaning up this mess. And pretty soon it becomes pretty clear that a three-year-old and a six-year-old aren't going to be able to take care of this mess on their own and that they're going to need me and Amanda to step in and clean up the mess. We are people when we start talking about forgiveness, who are in need of God's intervention in the messes that we've created and been a part of and been victims of in our own lives. Forgiveness is about God's unrelenting mercy and forgiveness over debts that we could not have handled or taken care of on our own. What we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to give you a chance to actually exercise the 12th verse of Matthew 6, which is to say, recognizing our own needs for forgiveness in confession When my kids wrong each other, when they do something that's offensive to each other, whenever it is that they do, if I remember, I generally have them say, and it's even harder when I have to say it to them when I wrong them as well, is the words, I'm sorry for what I did, and I have them always end it with, I was wrong. As if to say, I get it. This wasn't okay. I was wrong. In confession is what we say, in our own admission of our our need for forgiveness, what we say is, I was wrong. And here's why. When you came in, you got a piece of paper. Mine has a little bit of writing on it now, but it looks like this. It was in your, in your bulletin. And what we're going to do is I'm going to pray in a moment. You're going to get a chance to write down some of what you're wrong about. Who, for people you've wounded, for thoughts that you've had, for ways that you've cut corners, for whatever it is that you want, this is up to you to confess. Some of you in this room will believe, gosh, you know, Jeff, if you knew what I did, you wouldn't even let me in the room. I cannot be forgiven for the stuff that I've done. Let me again remind you that the debts that Jesus talks about for the people for whom they're forgiven are unpayable by them, which means he is the one who will take on the debt himself, which means none of us are beyond forgiveness. But our capacity to love is directly linked to our ability to understand and embrace how much we have been forgiven. And so the other side of that paper is then, who are the people that you need to release? Some of you have wounds that have been caused by people that are so severe and so dire that you can't... This is not Today is not the end of the journey of like, wow, now I've forgiven them, let's go to lunch. Then maybe today is just merely the beginning of the journey of releasing some people or someone who has wounded you. I talked to a guy last night, he said... It took me 35 years after my father's death to finally release him in forgiveness. This is a long process by which all of us get to join in in ending the exile of ourselves and other people, but it doesn't begin and end today. It just merely begins. So the band's gonna come up, I'm gonna pray, and then you're gonna get some time to write some stuff down. After you write it down, what I wanna do is this. We're gonna have kind of a display of love at work, of forgiveness being received and captivity being released. And what you'll do is you'll roll this up, walk forward and place it into this prayer wall here. You can't see it for some of you. I know where you're sitting, but you walk up and place it into the prayer wall. And it will be a sort of a symbol of a community of people who have been released to love and forgiveness. So let's pray together and then we'll give you some opportunity to write some stuff down to confess and to release, to be released and to release other people. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all say, either out loud or in the quietness of our own hearts, we all say in some capacity and in some way, I was wrong. And so, Lord, it's in that confession of I was wrong that we receive your forgiveness, that there are messes that we have been a part of and created that we cannot possibly, in our best effort, clean up on our own. And so we invite you, Lord, Lord, who is rich in mercy and compassion, to forgive us. Lord, also we are people because we are human beings who live among other human beings. We have been wronged by other people. We have been wronged on a daily basis. We've been wronged by people who are supposed to love us. Some of us have huge neglect and abuse and abandonment by people who are supposed to love us. God, would today be a day in which we begin the process of releasing those people courageously? Lord, we want to be people who understand the full depth of forgiveness, that we might be people who are freed to love. There would be an end of exile for us and for the people who have wronged us. God, it's in confession and forgiveness that we find freedom. And so, Lord, would this be a moment, a time in which we experience the free gift of your grace, which gives to us freedom, the end of our own exile. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you need pens or some of you didn't get a bulletin that had a card in it, you can come forward and write. There's pencils and pens and stuff up here. But take this time. Really investigate the content of your own heart. Confess, receive forgiveness, and release others.
1: i